0: Hi, and welcome to Finance Matters, a podcast brought to you by UVA Finance, UVA's trusted financial partner. Finance Matters is a podcast series where we bring you bite-sized thoughts, stories, and inspiration in the hopes they'll be useful to you on this road we're all on to do our best and be our best in the realm of financial matters here at UVA. I'm your host, Brandy Van Ormer. I'm here today at the contemplative, I'm gonna get that wrong if I don't think about it carefully, Sciences Center, and we have a special guest. We've traveled here today to talk with David Germano, who's the executive director of the Contemplative Sciences Center. Thank you for being here with us.
1: Yeah, thank you so much Patty and Brandy. happy to talk with you.
0: So we knew we wanted to speak with David after uh, we were thinking more about what would be great during change-heavy times. Patty mm-hmm. and I have already on the pod talked a, a lot about self-care and different ways that you can take care of yourself, just to have more, to have more work-life balance. But also, especially in times of change when things might get a little bit more stressful. Um, and we both had been to some programming put on by CSC, and we thought, man, these folks really know what they're talking about. So we're here today to talk to David, and I guess the best place to start, because we use a lot of vocabulary, like mindfulness and self-care, and um, people may be be thinking, "Or are we talking about meditation today? And the answer is, not really. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me what we're talking about when we're talking about the contemplative sciences.
1: So we started the Contemplative Science Center about six years ago. And when it began, we chose the word contemplation very deliberately, because we thought it was a word that had a wonderful elasticity to it. It's something that we use all the time. Someone might say, if you want to go to a movie, I'm going to contemplate on it. Mm-hmm. And then people might use it for these very um, complex religious practices in Christianity, or Islam, or Buddhism, and so forth. And so it's a word that kind of has this, this stretch to it. And the way that I think about how all these different uses bind together and how it relates to education, k 12 education, undergraduate education, professional education, is that it's about kind of introducing a gap between the busy transactional nature of our lives where we're just out there doing stuff, reacting immediately and so forth. Introducing a gap between that situation you find yourself in and what you actually do. Mm-hmm. Now that gap may be what your mother or father taught you. Take a deep breath before you lash out, you know. Count so to ten. Count to ten. <laughs> so the gap is ten seconds long. Yeah. But the gap might be four years long for an undergraduate. Or the gap might be a summer for someone who's working in a job or whatever a vacation is a gap. Mm-hmm. So a gap is that moment when, where we take a pause between a stimulus and a reaction and situation and our action within that situation. And the question is, what do we do? What do we do in that gap? What do we do in that pause? What are the reflections that we undergo? Um, What do we catch sight of ourselves about and what might we do with that information?
0: How does that translate in a practical scenario? Can you give us an example of a common way that that might unfold?
1: Yeah, I'll give you a really wonderful example at UVA that was instituted in the hospital system and it was uh, done by Dory Fontaine, who's the Dean of Nursing. Mm-hmm. And she called it, I believe, a contemplative pause. And it was basically in the operating theater, she asked that when someone passed away on the operating table, that they took 60 seconds out to just stop and and jointly reflect on the fact that someone under their care just passed away. Wow. 60 seconds. That's powerful. That's yeah. very powerful. And so I, I thought a lot about, like, well, why would that be? Why would that be powerful? Why would that be meaningful? Yeah. And mm-hmm. I thought one of the things that seemed very powerful about it was that this is someone who's been under your care, who is it, it's the ultimate failure in some sense, whether or not you really did anything wrong. You have a sense of failure, a sense of grief, a sense of loss. And usually you just walk away with that. You carry mm-hmm. that away with yourself with no acknowledgment of it, no acknowledgment of what happened. But by spending 60 seconds together you have a moment to process this in a communal fashion, in a collective fashion, and to kind of recognize that we were all together in this, and for reasons outside of our control, it didn't work out how we hoped.
0: Mm -hmm. Did they track how that maybe impacted things like burnout or people's sense of well-being?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure if they've done any kind of research study, I've mostly just heard anecdotally from uh, Dean Fontaine and Mm -hmm. others about the way in which people have appreciated it. And and even to some degree it's gone viral where people who were not under her direct um, supervision asked to do it.
0: It sounds like such a beautiful thing. I'll be honest, when you started talking about it, I assumed my mind jumped ahead to a a different direction. I thought you were going to say like before they began the procedure, they had a dedicated pause just to, to kind of make sure that they were on target and ready to go, mm-hmm. but it's almost, it makes even, it's more of a deep personal thing and less of a transactional thing, what you're describing, because I was thinking, you know, pause to check that you're on the right limb, <laughs> no, no, Brandy, you're still being very transactional. Um, so, you know, we're talking about change a lot, on the podcast and we're talking about change a lot in finance and change a lot at uva and whether or not it's at work or at home we do have constant changes everywhere and as you you mentioned when you introduced the the topic we're very busy and there's stimulus coming at us everywhere and i thought of that knowing that we were going to come talk with you today this morning i dropped my daughter off at her summer camp slash daycare location. It's in a beautiful location right at the foot of the mountains and my phone was going off and there were little kids everywhere, but I looked out for the, at the window for a second and I was like, oh, it's so pretty. And I was thinking, it's easy to miss a lot of things when you're very, very very busy. So if you could address maybe a little bit of how, how this works into busyness and alleviating some of that frustration and overstimulation you feel
1: yeah so, so my original background was in Buddhist studies. I'm in the Department of Religious Studies. And so Buddhism has a lot to say about change. It talks about change in ways that go back you know several thousand years as as all cultures do, because change is is pervasive for us. But I think what's happened over the last couple of decades is it's not like the old antidotes that say, you know, as you get older you say, "Eh, people were like I used to be, you know, your grandfather said that, your mother said that, and so on. But I think actually something has fundamentally changed, and what's changed is the very nature of change itself. This is not the change that our parents or our grandparents were accustomed to or experienced with or had to adapt to. Change has become far more rapid in character the rate of change is different. Mm -hmm. It's become far larger in character, the volume of change, the complexity of change, and the scope of change. Because of technology and communication, and um, all these transformations that are producing economic transformations, we're dealing with change that no one in the history of our species has ever had to cope with in terms of that nature of change. And so when we think about that, and we think about how can we continue to be resilient and adaptive in the face of these kinds of changes, um, could be family changes, mm-hmm. you know, divorce and separation and so forth, could be work changes, like a new fiscal system gets introduced or a new HR. system mm-hmm. gets introduced to cut close to the <laughs> <middle> <laughs> here at the university. And so to go back to those examples like the operating theater, most of us don't have someone in our care who's going to die or survive. But we all have the opportunity to introduce brief moments, moments that we can individually and collectively kind of step to the side of the change and just be reflective. So a good example is we have lots of meetings in the University of Virginia. Sometimes I think it's our major output, you know, <laughs> meetings. But how do we run those meetings? How often do we start meetings with two minutes of quiet? Or three minutes of just going around and asking everyone to check in and say something about where they are today or what their intention or hope is today. That's a very small change mm-hmm. in how we go about our work. And yet, might it not have the same kind of rippling viral impact that that 60 seconds in the operating theater has?
0: And making the workplace a more compassionate place, too. A place where you're not swallowing, as the, in the operating theater example, you're not just swallowing that sense of loss and moving on. And although no, thankfully, in finance, nobody lives or dies, but you can feel a little run over every day by just the day-to-day grind and by having to meet deadlines or um, take things and run with them. And having that sense that it's okay to just be for a second and that Mm -hmm. check-in, that sounds like a a way to have a better workplace, too.
2: Yeah, I was going to mention something about
0: when you were talking about um, moving into the, the contemplation and then
2: moving into change, and you mentioned Dory, and I worked with Dory um, on the Respect at UVA task force years ago that we put through. Um, all the changes that we had around Respect at UVA it was led by HR at the time, and I worked with Dory on that. And, um, and then years later, we had um, a meeting where she was the invited speaker to come and talk about um, respectful workplace and civility and that kind of thing. And she talked about, and this is what made me think of it when you were talking about change and just taking a moment. And I was thinking about, you know, maybe, could you speak to a little bit about relationships and um, taking a moment and how that impacts just relationships at work. And the reason I thought about Dory, and, and I was wondering if you could comment on this as well, is that she talked about how often do you just walk by people and you say, you know, uh, hey, 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 how, how are you, you doing? And you just keep going yeah. and like there's no stop for a moment and really connect with people. And um, she talked a little bit about that and I can't remember exactly what she was saying about that and how that impacted, it certainly impacts respectful workplace because you make connections with people and there's a sense of respect and civility around that. But um, do you, can you speak to that a little bit more?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great example. So. Um, when we think about this contemplative pause, one of the things we can do on that is, is deobjectify how we're rendering other people in our awareness. Mm-hmm. Because I think as we go about our work, we're typically stressed out, we have a lot of things we have to achieve, we're worried about them. We're also concerned about our own individual performance and people potentially looking at us and saying, oh, you made that mistake, that's your fault, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And in the process, I think we just naturally all objectify each other. And part of that is just, it's just um, practical. We can't go around our whole life and every time I see Patty or Brandy, I say, oh, who is Patty, who is Brandy? I mean, to some degree, we objectify each other. Just like I passed through this door and and I didn't pay attention to the door. It was just a transactional thing I accomplished Mm -hmm. to walk in here. But I fear that we often become like that with each other to an excessive degree. And so by taking these small moments out to just call attention to that. Mm -hmm. That you have expectations about someone that perhaps are not always going to be fulfilled, positive or negative. And the other thing I think about it when you mentioned Dory is that uh, something I've been thinking about a lot recently, which is we tend to, in the workplace, look at successes and failures as individual in character. And I think that, ultimately, that tends to take us in a bad direction. We should Mm -hmm. think about them as relational in character, which means that. If we succeed at something, it's because we jointly succeeded with another person or three other people. Mm -hmm. And if we fail, it's not about me pointing my fingers at Brandy and saying, oh, you did this, and I was perfectly flawless here, even if that's what you feel. Because in the end, the two of you were supposed to work together. Mm -hmm. And you have to take responsibility for that. And it ripples all the way up. Someone up above who's looking at people they supervise and say, oh, you guys jointly failed. Well, obviously, I fell, too, mm-hmm. because I was responsible for giving instructions and monitoring those relationships and providing support. So, And I succeeded as well, mm-hmm. when those people who report to me succeed. So thinking about things more relationally like that and mm-hmm. less about, I'm a vulnerable, defensive person, I have isolated resources, I'm under attack. When we think that way, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. But when we think more about um, what study after study has shown is the most important determinant of well-being. It's social support, mm-hmm. which means a trusted network of others that you have confidence in.
0: Wow, that's cool. We've been reading a lot about trust lately, too. Trust in terms of how it works in organizations. So this is... Yeah, that definitely goes... To, it's goes all just, feeding together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so for people who are listening out in the audience who... I think that we, the conversation so far has been very practical and not at all maybe what people were thinking uh, such a conversation would be like. So furthering that kind of vein on, if, if, you're, if you've never given this any thought, where are some good places to begin in your life as a professional?
1: Um, well, I think there's two ways to approach it. One is there's a lot of just very concrete, informal kind of ways to orient yourself towards your life in a different way that don't necessarily require that you listen Mm -hmm. to a podcast with a guided meditation Mm -hmm. or you go to a yoga workshop and so forth, but just these small things. Like for example, to go back to that meeting idea, if you have responsibility for a meeting, there is no guideline from Terry Sullivan or Jim Ryan about saying you can't start a meeting off that way that you can't take one minute out like that. And so just considering ways that you yourself at an individual level, or you yourself as someone responsible for the relationships of others and events, how you can introduce these small informal elements that can lead to a greater degree of reflection by everybody about what we're trying to accomplish, how we impact upon each other's success and happiness and and sadness and so forth. these are small things like that, and there's a lot of um, resources out there to, to read about. And then the more formal way would be to think about doing something that where you actually acquire a new practice. I mean, I think our lives are all about practices and, and outcomes. And the problem is, the vast majority of practices we engage in, we're not conscious of. We learn them from the moment we popped out of our mother's womb and probably before that, back in the mother's womb. You know pushed against the membrane and got a little resistance. So we learn all these practices that are linguistic and emotional and physical and relational and social and professional and so forth, and these are producing these outcomes. But we tend to just focus on, we don't like what happened, and we don't go back and think, what practice was I engaging in, which maybe could have produced a different outcome? Not everything's under our control, Mm -hmm. but our practices are certainly under our control. And so I would say doing some workshops, whether they're about mindfulness or about yoga or about uh, reflective leadership, that helps you reflect upon your own life and the behaviors and practices you're engaging in and whether they're aligned with your own well-being, your own flourishing. And so there's a lot of things that are offered here at the University of Virginia. The Contemplative Science Center offers some. You can find them on our website. But there's also a number of other organizations here at the university that offer these kinds of things. And I think some of us feel, oh, I'm too busy for that. i got to do this, or it's just going to be kind of loosey-goosey, touchy-feely. But if we're never going to reflect upon our lives, then basically change happens to us. And we are not part of change. We do not participate in change, because we've made ourselves static. So I think this is an opportunity, whether informal in small ways, or taking an afternoon out for a workshop or a weekend for us to be more conscious about how we participate in change and how we can help direct change towards ways that are going to be beneficial for us our loved ones and our our colleagues.
2: I really like how you d- described that there's there's different levels of like making the commitment to do this because we one of the things Brandy and I were talking about in our very last podcast was sometimes people become overwhelmed that they think oh you know I really I do this a lot like I really feel like I need to like Fully dive into something and if I'm gonna go for it, I'm gonna have to schedule myself for all these classes and I'm gonna have to do that and but but yours your examples of yes those are there those are available for you to do but then also you can make some small changes like starting your meetings with just some not chit-chat but we already start with chit-chat you know almost all the time But something fun. that's a little bit more intentional yeah. about checking in with people and and however that looks, whether it's you know going around the room and just saying you know how are you really feeling today, you know what what's what's giving you energy or what's you know what's bothering you, those kinds of things. Um, I feel like we can make connections, and then even making those small changes can then make you excited and more um, uh, willing to like dive into the the more more
1: of a commitment. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's also about bringing life into um, into our work and life into our studies. I think in America in particular, we've often got a sense that these have to be really strictly bifurcated. Leave your life out of the classroom. Leave your life out of the workplace. Mm-hmm. You're, you're wasting time. Time is productivity and so forth. Mm-hmm. But I think when we go down these directions, we're we're ending up undercutting our own kind of goals. Because when people feel like their life is left on the other side of the workplace boundary, what they don't bring is ethics, they don't bring care, they don't bring a relational sensibility to others, Mm -hmm. because they've been reduced to cogs in a machine. And then they're
0: less able to fulfill um, responsibilities and relationships in those other places where they've compartmentalized everything off. It all has a ripple effect. Yeah.
2: Can you speak a little bit about, um, I want to hear more about flourishing, so I don't want to forget about that, but um, can you speak a little bit about work-life balance? Because we talk about that a lot, but from what I hear you just saying, is that it's almost like we need to It's like It's work,
0: like work-life fluidity.
2: <laughs> yes, right, work-life fluidity, not, not necessarily a balance, a balance kind of, implies that there's work over here and there's life over here, <laughs> and the two never meet, yeah, you know. they're on opposite and, ends of the seesaw. And, and that there's this scale that you have to, like, be balancing all the time, and, and um, so I just wonder if you have thoughts about that.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great insight. Um, in, in Tibet, the word for retreat is actually boundary, and so when you do a retreat, it's about creating a boundary and saying that the, the boundary could be temporal for the next three hours or two days or whatever, I'm gonna be exclusively focused on this. Or the boundary could be physical. I'm not gonna leave the confines of this retreat place, this camp or whatever it is and so forth. And I think, it's gonna sound like I'm disagreeing with you, but I'm not, I'm just coming back to the issue of boundaries. Mm -hmm. I think one of the challenges that we have in our contemporary life is the dissolution of boundaries. When I grew up, we had a dinner table. Dinner table's gone in most families you just get your food and you go watch television and listen to some of <laughs> your you know, music or talk on social media or something. And so that formality of boundaries um, has become a problem. And one way that I've been thinking about contemplation is it's about being more conscious about establishing boundaries. Like for example, saying we could have chit chat at the beginning of the meeting or we could formally check in. Yeah. We could establish a two minute boundary where we're all gonna have the license to say something like my mother passed away or I just got engaged. I had an amazing weekend. To bring some trace of our life into this exchange, we now begin to talk about, okay, let's fix the formulas in the spreadsheet, which I've been doing for the past three weeks, you know. So, (laughs) or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So, I think boundaries are important, but boundaries, when they become too static, like we have right now, where don't bring your kid to the workplace, don't bring your pet, et cetera, those are, random examples, but there are so many ways in which our workplace we've set up as such clear, discrete boundaries and told, leave your life out of this. And these boundaries are, I think, are dysfunctional. And so I think we need more boundaries of certain types and less boundaries of other types. Yeah. And that goes back to your, um, the, the, the term fluidity. Like, we have to figure out when boundaries should be there and when they should not be there, mm-hmm. and just not have a static insistence. Yeah.
2: We don't show up to work and have the rest of our life not existing in that compartment. And I've been working a lot with managers. We, in finance, we have a manager development program and I've been working a lot with them. And a lot of times managers will, will talk about the feeling that they can't ask their employees certain questions. Like if their employees not, doesn't seem to be doing well a lot of managers say, and I, I worked in HR before I went over to finance, I worked in HR for 12 years, and I wasn't in that kind of an HR capacity, but was in training, but, but still, you, you learn about things like that and policies and, and things. But I think there's a misconception that managers can't ask an employee something personal. And I think that's so wrong. Um, of course you can ask your employee if they're okay. You know, how could you not if somebody seems to be struggling with something?
1: Yeah, um. You don't ask if, if they're going out with anybody Friday night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or or, or, what's or if sexual t- orientation. Right. Yeah. Right. Or but, yeah. if they're
2: if they're taking leave, you don't say, you know, why are you, why do you need this personal day off? Right. But if they seem to be struggling, I think it's perfectly acceptable to say, is everything okay?
1: Right. And then you can because if we're all whole people, mm-hmm. and yet our worlds are set up to fragment us. Mm-hmm. Students become just academic prod- productivity machines mm-hmm. in the classroom, mm-hmm. and staff become just people who are doing these outputs that they've been assigned in their jobs. Mm-hmm. And that's never gonna work well for any of us, mm-hmm. because those other parts of ourselves resent it, mm-hmm. or feel unappreciated, and they push back in ways that have been potentially damaging for self as well as for the collective environment.
2: So back to the work life balance, I think, you know, it's a good we could do a whole podcast oh on gosh, that, yeah. but but um, I think it's a good thing to think about the, the boundaries and where they're where they're meant to be kind of pushed and where they're perfectly fine to be there.
0: This has been such a great discussion. Before we um, close out our discussion today, was there anything else that you wanted to mention?
1: Well, I think the thing that I've been, and I must say that my background is in Buddhism and it was in philosophy and contemplation, but that's very different from what we've been doing for the last six years or seven years at the University of Virginia as I've gotten involved with this contemplative initiative. It, It wasn't something I requested of the university. It was something that Terry, President Sullivan requested of me to be involved. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I went through a lot of reflective processes myself thinking, what does this even mean within a community, within an institution, within a workplace, within a a classroom, and so on. And I forced myself to do a lot of things that I was very uncomfortable with. It wasn't how I was teaching. Mm -hmm. It wasn't how I was running meetings. It wasn't how I was doing a, a lot of things. And so over the last six or seven years, as we've all kind of collectively explored some of these possibilities, the thing that I've gotten focused on it is really not so much contemplation, but rather it's the possibility of flourishing. And I think in our various quarters, we're we're so focused these days on a micro awareness of crisis. There's always a crisis. <laughs> a crisis appears in Twitters or emails or the newsfeed and so forth, or it's very local in character. And we lose sight of how are we organizing our lives towards the flourishing of all of us whether it's organizing a classroom to think about a student, not just how can you master chemistry or how can you master American history, but how can you flourish in your life, in your physical, emotional, social life, in your professional, civic, family life later down, and in the workplace? How can we set up work environments so, yes, we've got to keep this machinery of the university going, but how can we do so so that we're actually participating in what we say the university is supposed to be about, which is collectively exploring the possibility of flourishing for humans and for the broader world in which humans are embedded. So I think that question of flourishing is something that I I really have um, kind of focused on. And I've been focused particularly on student flourishing, but I think staff flourishing is something just as important. If we have a toxic environment for staff, and then meanwhile we're talking about creating students that flourish, students interact with staff all the time. Mm -hmm. And so if staff and faculty are not flourishing, I really don't think students are gonna flourish either. It has to be a a collective enterprise by all of us involved with this community. And the same goes for, of course, Charlottesville community members. So this question of flourishing is something I just hope we as a university can increasingly focus on.
0: I wish you could hear over the podcast nodding of heads because Patty and I are (laughs) 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 like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I actually (laughs) would love to
2: perhaps do a full podcast just on
0: that topic, if if you'd be willing to do that. Sure, always
1: ready to talk about flourishing. That's great. (laughs)
0: Yeah, this has been really, really great. Just for time's sake today, um, we're going to have to um, call a halt to this conversation, but I can't tell you how much we appreciate um, your time today and talking about this. You mentioned a few resources during our conversation. We'll definitely link those in the show notes. So don't worry about that, listeners. You can go to Podbean or to the blog to get those. Um, Thank you once more, sir. We appreciate your time. Patty, thanks again for being here today. We went on the road today. Thank you, audience, for joining us today for Finance Matters. Remember, you can always read more about what finance is up to on the blog at uvafinance.blogspot.com. And as I've been mercilessly pushing for the last few pods, we have a Jive community launching soon. Look for that probably in August. If you've got an idea for a podcast or you know someone who's doing good work out there on the operational side or the academic side of things at UVA, please do let us know. You can email me, email Patty, or you can tweet us directly at UVA underscore finance. That's all we have for now. Until next time, do good work because what you're doing matters.